Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, members and guests, um, those who are here presently uh, at the AWA WA July event. Uh, my name is Brendan Augustine. I'm the president of AWA WA. Uh, thank you for joining us, those who are online and those who are here present tonight on this rather cold and rainy night. Um, today, before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we are gathering, the Noongar people of the uh, the Noongar people, the and their their elders past, present, uh, and um, their ongoing. And I'd like to acknowledge their their ongoing presence and leadership in our our country and state and our region. This evening we have a slightly different um, themed event from from what we do typically. Um, it is potentially something that uh, Australia needs to be doing more of. Um, it is sports diplomacy with a particular with a particular emphasis on Asia. Um, Australia is a sporting nation that trades on its sporting image. Um, but apart from cricket in South Asia, it doesn't really have a lot of resonance in other parts of Asia. One reason is sometimes we play sports that traditionally doesn't have that support base in Asia. Uh, in my case, I came across it once uh, when I was working in Indonesia and where the then Australian MotoGP champion, uh, I think it was Mick Doohan, came to Indonesia. Of course, he was known in Australia as a, you know, within the motorcycle and the motorsports um, um, environment. But we at the embassy were, we were absolutely surprised of how big a star he was and, and how much he was feted. So much so that we got a call from the president's office uh, for uh, a personal meeting between some in the presidential entourage um, with this very famous Australian that which if you walked down the street in Sydney, Perth, Melbourne or Brisbane um, would hardly be recognized. Um, and so I think we have an opportunity uh, to explore this issue and we have two very special speakers here who are sporting people themselves and who have who have lived and played sport uh, in the region. Um, first, we have Robbie Gaspar, uh, who will be our first speaker. Uh, Robbie is a, as we say in Australia, soccer, but the rest of the world say football uh, professional. Uh, he's played not, you know, after playing in Australia, he played in Malaysia and in Indonesia for quite some time. Uh, he's been very active subsequent to his playing days in promoting relations with Indonesia. And he has a great vantage point on which to, to explore this issue. Um, and we have also Chris Cirello, who was an uh, Australian national hockey player, uh, played almost 200 games uh, for Australia, won World Cup gold medals, World Cup championships, and many other accolades. Uh, and Chris um, played hockey in different parts of the world, but for this today's discussion, he played five or six seasons, six seasons in the Indian Premier Hockey League Championship, 
and then subsequently took on coaching roles there. The question that we've asked them to kind of address is how, you know, being an Australian, playing in a sport, very popular sport in the areas, in the, in the parts of the world where they played their sport, uh, what was their experience? Um, how did they experience it as an Australian? And, and I guess I'll, I'll let them say it in their words, but following that, we'll have a panel session where we'll have a Q&A first between the three of us and then open it to the audience as, 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 we, as we always do. Um, to um, to delve into the the topic, and can I just again apologize for the technical issues we had at the beginning? Um, can I give the floor to to Robbie? And um, and um, we're really interested to hear your story. Thank you, Brendan, and thanks again for the opportunity to AIIAWA to come and have a chat with everyone here and discuss a, a topic, a subject that I'm really passionate about. Um, so a little bit about my story: born and bred here in Western Australia um played professional football for around 14 years and 10 of those 14 years was in in asia but my first experience in asia playing um, football was when i was 16 years of age so with the west australian state team we traveled to the lion city cup and it sort of really opened my eyes to asian football so i went to singapore we got to play against the singapore national team vietnam the philippines malaysia and we ended up losing the, the final to ARK Stockholm. And we played a, played in a tournament where in the final we had around 5,000 people at the old Jalambasar Stadium. And it sort of really sort of, I was just blown away by the passion and the love for football. So um, when, I, when I tried my hardest to, you know, make it in Europe, um, and then I decided I might give Asia a bit of an opportunity. I had the opportunity to go to Brunei in uh, 2002. So I was lucky enough to play for one of the princes over there, um, Prince Kalwi. He was a nephew of the Sultan. So he asked me to come and play and be a guest in one of his teams in the FA Cup in Brunei. So um, I had six fantastic months there and that stint finished. And the prince during that time was trying to enter his team into the Singapore um, S League at that time. And that didn't, didn't work out. So I came home and um, I was offered an opportunity to go and play in Sabah. Um, which you know very well as well, growing up there is um, to go and play in the, in the Malaysian um, Super League. So um, I arrived in Malaysia. Um, I had a fantastic first season there. Um, we ended up playing in a Malaysia Cup final. So played in front of 85,000 people. We're an FA Cup semi-final. We finished fourth. And on a personal, I had a really good season where I scored 13 goals from midfield. So um, that really whetted my appetite for to keep on playing in Asia. So I came back again in 2004 and, you know, we had a bit of an indifferent season uh, that time. Um, and then I actually sort of left Sabra at the end of 2004, went back to Brunei again to play another another six months for the same team with Prince Abdul Kawi. So um, after that six months, I came home and through the same person who actually arranged for me to go to Malaysia, Brent, uh, Peter Butler, who ended up becoming a very close mentor and close friend of mine, he offered me the opportunity to go and play in Indonesia. Um, I didn't know much about Indonesia, you know, even though they were nearest neighbour to the north. And as I always say, you know, Jakarta, their capital is closer than our capital, Canberra, a city of 20 million people. I'd never been there. I'd never really experienced. I didn't know much about Indonesian football. And um, I ended up being the first Australian to play professionally in Indonesia. Went inside for a, cl for a club called Persita Tangerang. But what really blew me away when I first got there was the love for professional football, um, how good the standard was. Um, no disrespect to Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, to Malaysia and Brunei, but the standard was on another level. The professional as well was on another level. 
um, and I was just blown away by it. It actually took me a little bit of time to actually adapt to Indonesia, just the level of the game, the intensity, the amount of travel, the big crowds, playing games in, at 3.30 instead of the usual Malaysian kickoff at 8.15. So um, the first year I struggled. It was a bit more like an adaptasi, like an adaptation period. Mm. Um, but it really whetted my appetite to stay and continue playing on in Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. Um, that year I had a sort of a bit of an indifferent season as the whole team did. Um, and then I ended up moving to a, to a team called Perceva Balikpapan in East Kalimantan. So um, I'd heard a lot about Balikpapan through a friend of mine in Kota Kinabalu. Um, he was an Australian, had an Australian restaurant there that I used to sort of travel a fair bit to have, you know, like a bit of a bit of Australian cooking, um, especially during my pre-match meals. And he talked, spoke about Balikpapan a fair bit. So I ended up moving there and living there for three years and I had a fantastic time there. So um, the team in Balikpapan was a bit of an unfashionable team, but we ended up getting to the top four in Indonesia for the first time. Um, and yeah, I sort of had three fantastic years there. Um, during my time there, sort of I got to travel all over Indonesia. So I traveled past Aceh, which is in the West, all the way across to Papua in the East. So as my people don't realize how you know, large Indonesia is, it's 5,200 kilometers from one end to the other, seven and a half thousand islands. And when you think about Australia, it's only 3,800 kilometers from, you know, from East to West. It's a massive sort of difference as well. And um, during my time in Balikpapan, you know, we ended up being really successful. Um, I had three fantastic years there. Then after that, um, my time finished up and I went to Prasema Malang. Well, for people that don't know where Malang is, it's in East Java. So it's maybe two hours from Surabaya up in the mountains. So I played for a team, which was the Walikotas team, which is the mayor's team. So Parpeni. So I had two great years there. Um, during that time, we actually did a team transition into the Liga Super as well. So had another great year there as well. Then finally, I sort of finished up and played at Persib Bandung, which is a team, which is the biggest team in Indonesia. Mm. And that sort of that experience blew my mind with respect to playing for a team. I didn't, you'd play against Persib, but actually playing for them, you always felt, you know, you felt like you're part of the Beatles. Wherever you're playing, there was full stadiums. So we had 45,000 regularly. You know, you travel, 10, 15,000 fans would travel with you across throughout Java. So that was a fantastic experience. And during that time there as well, I ended up sort of becoming a member of the um, Players Association, the board. So I was the first Australian to ever sit on a foreign player union board, which I sort of, you know, like, which I was really proud of. And so a lot of the players used to look up to me to go and help them if they had any sort of issues and stuff like that. And sort of my time finished at the end of 2012. But during that time there, I became a bit of an Indonesianist, mm. passionate about Indonesia, passionate about building relations, relations through football. So I came home in the 2012, early 2015, <coughs> excuse me, and I didn't really have much of a skill set apart from playing football. So um, I went back to university and I studied a Bachelor of Business with a major in Accounting and Indonesian. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot of Bahasa Gaul. For people that don't know what Bahasa Gaul is, it's sort of the local slang language. Mm -hmm. So I went back and learned formal Indonesian. Mm -hmm. And during that time as well, I was employed by the um, World Glo the Global Players Association FIFPRO. So my remit was Southeast Asia and also South Asia. South Asia. So I assisted a lot of the player associations with their strategies or their moving forward and with their organising as well. So that was fantastic as well. And <coughs> during that time as well, I was lucky enough to go and do a four-week internship at the Australian Embassy. Mm. So I wrote up the Australian Embassy's sports diplomacy strategy um, for the year 2016, So, which was something I was really sort of enjoyed mm. sort of learning. I didn't really know much about sports diplomacy up until that time. And 
just a year earlier, the federal government brought out their sports diplomacy strategy. Mm. So for between the uh, time between 2015 and 2018. So um, that was a great experience for me as well. I came back, finished my degree, um, went back and studied a grad cert international relations, being passionate about sort of in international relations and sports diplomacy and mm. building those people to people links through football. Mm. I sort of finished that. And then um, oh, during that time as well, I sort of, I was part of the Australia-Indonesia Business Council, mm. ended up becoming chair in 2020 mm. for a year, stepped down um, when Jenny Matthews came on board, and then um, only recently sort of become president of the Indonesia Institute. So I'm passionate about Indonesia, passionate about building relations through sport or just building those people-to-people links as well, people that have lived in Asia, a lot of it's relationship-based having that sort of cultural competency, that sort of Asia literacy or Indonesia literacy and sort of really looking to Indonesia or, you know, other countries, Malaysia, India as well. Chris is going to discuss that as well because there's so much potential up there for mm. Australia to really sort of build their relationship, that soft diplomacy through sport. And, you know, I'm just really happy to be able to come here and actually discuss sports diplomacy with yourself and everyone else here in the room. Great, thank you very much, um, Robbie. And and we'll come back to kind of the the we'll ask some probing questions yep. uh, later on about you know the journey and and how you know the perceptions um, of of you being an Australian in, in in all those roles as a player as a a rep in the in the association and um, and 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 managing all of that and your subsequent journey. Uh, if I can pass on to to. to you Chris um similar if you could give us a, a bit of a summary as as Robbie did in terms of of that journey particularly on the on your interactions and and your your period working working in um in India well playing and then working in India sure thank you very much Brendan and uh I know I I for uh for WA for uh, having me here today um sports diplomacy for me um I'll probably start with a bit of my just quick touch of my background I played hockey for Australia. I played 199 games. I scored 116 goals. I went to two Olympics, won an Olympic medal, World Cup, gold medal, two Commonwealth Games, gold medals, an array of champions trophies, about six medals, five gold across my time. Um, so I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with one of our very illustrious West Australian leaders, Rick Charlesworth, um, six, six years, six days a week, often too many hours in one day, mm. as we say. Um, a little bit about uh, my my background. I come. My mother's actually born in India, so I'm half Indian, half Italian. So, as we say, some of the best food in the world. Mm. Hard as an athlete to keep the uh, the weight down, that's for sure. Mm. Um, but in regards to working within India as a historical base, I was brought up in a culture. Uh, I'm originally from Melbourne, and not really having a full understanding of how I fit in and amongst the Australian community until heading to India for my first time, which was in 2010, the Commonwealth Games. So that uh, experience was quite interesting. The village hadn't been finished yet. By the end of it, it was fantastic. Um, we played in front of a stadium of about 55,000 screaming Indian fans. Mm. And India, very similar to Indonesia, they are very passionate. It's like having 100 Indians versus 1,000 Australians. Mm. Um, so drums and seats, and we had stuff to bang things against the fence and and whistles and it was definitely the next level uh experiencing from an australian perspective we end up beating india uh eight nil in the final so i scored one of uh, my favorite goals out of my 116 of other goalkeepers head 
Uh, I predominantly played as a defender, uh, but then as I progressed through my career, played midfield and a bit of attacking midfield as well. Um, I played, like uh, Brendan said, I played the Indian Premier League, so very similar to the cricket. Um, played five, six seasons there. Uh, as I explained earlier, some, some of the sessions you'd have uh, in the six weeks, 27 flights, of which zero were on time. Um, Travelled all over India from Ranchi, so different. Uh, India's a very interesting uh, country with 30 different states, and they're all at different levels of growth and economy growth as well. Um, so we're able to travel a fair bit through there and see the, the disparity in the way people live. Um, everywhere from Mumbai, Ranchi, Delhi, uh, Uttar Pradesh, some different states all, uh, all across the state. From that experience, uh, IPL is very interesting because you don't get uh, to play the whole time. So there was a set of rules where you can only play five players at one time as a foreigner. And we had 10 foreigners and 20 Indians in our squad, um, which is uh, my role was more about culture, about bringing the players in together. And India, very similar to Indonesia, there's such a, a different level. So we had a lot of players that had played for India. We had the junior India players, we had club players, we had juniors coming through. Uh, then we had about 14 different languages. We had different religions and different hierarchies within those regions. So part of my role as a player was to bring all that together. Um, we ended up first year finishing about fourth, went on to finish third, second, and then we won the actual title. Uh, so that was quite an interesting experience to be able to travel around and sort of develop that. From there, I got offered... Um, I was still playing for Australia and I got asked to uh, go over and be the assistant or analytical coach for the Indian men's national team. So this team is uh, very passionate, should I say. Uh, they're the only team in the world uh, to ever have won eight gold medals during the Olympics. So I had a very interesting uh, interview, I suppose, offering the job. There was 30 different people, um, as you do culturally in India, uh, three different organisations and then about another 20 people on the outside. Um, so it was, uh, it was a very interesting PowerPoint experience, which I should have done for you today. Mm. Um, however, there was what we call Hockey India, which are the ones that run all the national body. There was Sports Authority of India. So that's a government body. And then we had the ministry. So they're the ones with all the money, which I should say they have a lot of money. Um, so they, they definitely look after a lot of people. Um, when I look at and took the position, the, inter the, because I had spent so much time in India, they spoke English during our playing time into Hindi, into Punjabi. And the guy, which was a money man, sat at the front and explained in Hindi. So I understood what he was saying, talking about whether I would, I would take the role for a lesser money because I was younger. <laughs> and uh, he asked around and, and I said, sure, I would. And, and what he then clicked was I understood Hindi. Uh, he then went and asked me if I was negotiable. And I said, of course, I'm negotiable if the price is going up. So <laughs> what we did was, uh, yeah, that became quite a huge joke along the time for a, a long period of time. Um, once I took the role, we ended up with uh, about 16, 17 different tournaments across the world. Um, I, I coached in the World Cup, which is in India, uh, as a manager, media manager, and also the uh, assistant coach. So all the, all the marketing and all the meetings had to come through my scheduling which was a bit of a mission in india um and then went on to coach asian games which is nearly fifteen thousand athletes that go through asian games which is bigger than than the olympics 
uh, Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast as well. Um, so I was lucky enough to be with these guys. I came on when they were about a time about number eight in the world. Um, there was then four head coaches. So three cycled through while I was there. And uh, we got them to number three via the Olympics, which I won a bronze medal, which was pretty fantastic. Um, across my time, we had anywhere from 33 in the squad to 66, sometimes more, um, of which sometimes we coached eight hours on the pitch plus meetings and you lived on campus. So you were literally 150 metres from where they lived. And uh, so you were available 24-7. So it was a bit of a different cultural experience for uh, not so much myself, but the other guys uh, amongst through the team. And like I said, we had we had a lot of North Indians, Punjabi. We had uh, we had people from Varanasi. We had people from Kerala. We had such an array of different players that had um, we had to try to make them fit. The common language we used was English, which is quite interesting for a lot of people uh, because people spoke different languages. Like I said, we had more than 11 or 14 languages, religions, hierarchies, and I had to sort of stamp that out to be able to build a good culture within the team. So we had a young guy come in at 18 and his father, as I found out later, was the head of the police and I had seven police. So as an 18-year-old, he was telling guys in their 30s what to do. And I said, unfortunately, you, you take a step up the run the right way. So we had a lot of different cultural experiences we really built upon. Uh, those guys went on to really develop well, like I said, win a, uh, win a medal at the Olympics, which is a fantastic for these guys. I went through a lot of different regions. When I worked with the Indian uh, side, which is a government body, we did selection for under 14s, 16s, 18s, uh, 21s, men's, women's across the country. So we'd go to regional areas and see the way they lived, um, see where they come from. We spent a lot of time with the, the captains and so forth and seeing where they actually had grown from. I uh, spent a bit of time in Jalanda, which is sort of North Punjab area, um, and seeing where one of the academies had gone from 11. There was 11 Olympians that come out of the one academy um, and that were in the team at the one time. So I went through there and sort of saw what they did. And the Indian captain, we went through his first house uh, before he became captain. And it was a rectangle box with three doors, sorry, three holes, no doors. And while we're there, it was 48 degrees. So all I wanted to do was have air conditioning. And he said, no, no, this is lovely. This is beautiful. So it was a bit of a different challenge and mindset for a lot of people. Um, interestingly enough, when it came to the last head coach was an Indian guy that got, got shifted on. Um, the guy that's, that got rid of me at 199 games, an Australian guy, full recycled and then end up taking the position as head coach with me in India, um, of which was a bit of a cultural shock, but he's still there now and he's doing really well. Mm. Um, so that's a big sort of a little bit of background or a lot of background for you guys. Um, I also have just come back from the West Australian uh, trade delegation, which went to India, went to uh, four different cities. Um, me being half Indian and then coach, uh, coaching in India, uh, I have a lot of different relationships and, and that was a very interesting, a uh, lot of interesting meetings with some of the sports um, diplomacy with say JSW who've got over 700,000 employees and are getting back into more at the moment, individual sports, but looking at team sports and then Tata steel round tables and that type of stuff, as well as our own sort of businesses we've looked at throughout India. 
Um, it's a very interesting place. Hockey India have really built it since winning a, a medal at the Olympics. We're looking at uh, there's 40 new academies that have come on board, all ranging from A to D sort of rating. Um, and then just the support coming from the Indian government into that has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, there's there's 10 coaches coming here to Perth for the first time ever, ever to have experience coaching outside of India. Um, and it's sort of opened up a huge market of which West Australia are looking to be able to develop. Great. I think um, maybe I can I can I can now delve into the the kind of the more strategic issues and and your interaction with those those issues. Um, maybe Robbie to you first. So so if I can picture this, you're you're playing. You know, you're an Australian, and I'll focus on Indonesia um, because I think that's the you know that's obviously the closest neighbor, and you know and and, and and a country with which at the end of the day, compared to say Malaysia and Brunei, where we've got actually closer, much closer cultural ties, language links, historical ties. Um, but with Indonesia, so if you know you are playing there as an Australian, uh, you said first Australian to play for one of the professional teams there. How what was the perception of your teammates, the the, the club administration? Um, you know, the people you came across, the fans, not to you as an individual, because we know you're a good guy and, and, and uh, a likable guy, but as an Australian and, and what image did they have of Australia, both generally and as a, a soccer nation, a football nation? Um, as I tell a lot of people that we're really well respected throughout the region, mm. especially, you know, throughout Asia and throughout the world through football, that we actually do punch above our weight. Mm for the size we are, you know. On, on, foot, on football matters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, five World Cups yeah. in a row, you know, like for a country of Australia, I think that's fantastic. You know, like you look at Italy, hasn't made the last two mm. World Cups. Sorry, just, you know. But um, <laughs> but um, how do you say it? It's for us to do that uh, over the last five World Cups. We've got a lot of cred throughout Asia and throughout the world, um, especially from that also from a sports science point of view as well. Sports science. Sports science. Yeah. Very well respected. You know, we've got like someone like Ange Postacoglu doing mm. fantastic things throughout Europe with coaching, you know, uh, Kevin Musket in Japan. Mm. So I went there and they had a, they have a massive respect for Australian footballers yeah. over there and for ourselves, you know, we wear a heart in our sleeve and we're over there when mm. we're playing and um, I really sort of enjoyed it. And I think, you know, sort of I try to embrace the culture as much, much mm. as possible. And, you know, it's all about sort of respect, being humble, that humility is massive. Mm. And I was just blown away by the professionalism because I've never been there. No, no other Australian mm. been there, played professionally. And, um, I was just blow, blown away by their professionalism. They embraced me as well. Just, just, just that point, because, you know, my experience, you know, both growing up in Malaysia and working there in the 90s, where Australia was not qualifying for the World Cups. So you're already Australia doing well in the international stage in football. And I think that subsequently Australia has won an Asian championship as well. You know, we do well, always got to the finals a couple of times or won it once. So already you're seeing that having an impact uh, in Indonesia and Asia more generally, the, 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 the Australian soccer reputation is growing, is helping Australia's image. Definitely, definitely. And we're sort of lucky as well. It was quite fortunate that we've now become part of Asia yeah. with respect to, you know, like the, the federation. You know, the federation. Yeah. So, 
in, in Asia, they've got the, a foreign player rule. It's called the three plus one rule. So you have three foreigners and then you have one plus one Asian and Australia falls in that Asian category. Okay. So it's provided a lot of opportunities for um, a lot of Australian players to be able to go on playing Asia. Because you're from the same federation. Yes, yeah. from the same federation. So, um, but then you look at countries like from a strategic point of view, Japan and Korea, they've gone three plus one plus one. That extra plus one is an ASEAN player rule. Okay. So they've seen the potential of ASEAN and so they've opened up an ASEAN player spot in their country. To funnel that talent through. Yeah. Funnel that talent through, building those relationships, those business-to-business -business links, those people-to-people -people links, and um, they've really taken it to another level. Here in the A-League, we haven't actually got the plus one rule yet. Mm -hmm. I've been sort of speaking to, you know, like I've been always ch championing that we need that plus one rule to better engage with our nearest neighbours, you know, sort of. But so so the numbers, you know, the numbers, because the numbers in Indonesia are always big, but the support level, I mean, not just for Indonesian football, but for international football. So Indonesians watch the Premier League, La Liga, the Spanish League, you know, the Italian League. Um, how do we get them focusing on not just on the image level? How do we get them focusing? Can 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 we use football as a source for... For Indonesians to take a proactive interest um, in, in in Australia, Australia. yeah, definitely. Is it sort of playing games between you know like teams here? So, for example, in Western Australia and also Indonesia, um, is it sort of you know trying to bring players from Indonesia over here as well, and and vice versa? So, we've got one Australian player currently playing in Indonesia. Aaron Evans, he's playing for Persis Solo. So, for people who don't realise, Persis Solo, the owner of the club, is Jokowi's son. Mm. So Kaizang, and then the other owner is Eric Trohir, who is the Minister for State-Owned yeah. Enterprises. So um, it's a very, Indonesia, it is a very, how do you say it, very well-watched game, very well sort mm. of, how do you say it, looked after game as well. So it's, you know, politics mix. It shouldn't be politics mixing sport, mm. but it just happens. So so if, if, I, if, 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 if you had one thing, if I could give you one wish to how to kind of combine, you know, and, and how to make, Australian and Indonesian soccer work better, Australian Indonesian football, to tap into that great support system and great interest and passion in Indonesia, what is the one thing you would do? I'd go a three plus one Indonesian player for all A-League clubs or a three plus one ASEAN player and encourage us to sort of help Indonesia achieve their footballing goals. So to get players get here. Get players here, help development. And development. that you think will draw then not only that will draw the players, but it will draw the audience in. Definitely. Definitely. You know, if we play these games, these games are one off. Yeah. But having the players here week in, week out, you know, are we going to televise the games live back to Indonesia? Is it going to provide a bit of an opportunity for us to, you know, like sort of engage with that player or with the players and understand the culture a lot better as well and you know, just develop that relationship? I think and what's the what's the response been by the football administrators here in Australia to that sort of idea? Oh, as much as you can say in a public forum. Oh, how do you say it? It's, you know, we're working on it. I think with a new Football Australia CEO, James Johnson, he's yeah. worked at the AFC. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, he understands the potential of Asia, but um, I think we're trying to sort of domestically, how do you say it, work on stuff here first, and then we're going to sort of look to Asia. But, you know, I'm, I'm seeing there's an appetite building here. We've got a uh, Football West uh, director here, um, mm. Annette. She's a... Mm. Uh, very passionate about Asia as well. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, Football West are doing Asian engagement very well as well. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, you know, we're going to sort of, you know, fly the flag for yeah. Australia as well. So, 
Great. I'll, I'll give you a break. I'll come back. I want you to think about business and how that should intersect with, um, because I know football in Indonesia is, is big business. So I'll come back to you with a question around that. So, so Chris, for you, um, I think this is a particularly poignant moment in, 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 you know, hockey relations. I think you've already alluded to Indian coaches coming here for the first time in big numbers because for many years, Indian hockey was wallowing, um, you know, from their great yeah. tradition in, you know, right up to the late 60s and even early 70s. I think they, they won a gold medal in 1980, but mm -hmm. that was the um, the boycotted Moscow Olympics. But um, so I think the resurgence of Indian hockey, I really believe that provides an opportunity for Australia-India mm. relations to, to, you know, to be a, a new part or, or a, a new part of Australia-India relations uh it's taking place now um how how what are what are some other things we can we can think about doing so in the indian public growing public of hockey fans think about hockey they think also about australia <clears throat> sure um i think hockey is definitely growing here as well so i've i've aligned myself and done a bit of work with iswa mm. the indian society western australia um more around, so I've just built a business case out, which I've been developing with Hockey Western Australia, which is my role, I should mention, which is head of Asian engagement. Mm. So I'm sure that uh, they might have some interesting discussions later. Um, so I've actually built a, a, a business case in around coaching programs, uh, tours and tournaments. So we have some international tournaments, which I've organized for teams from Indonesia. We've got Malaysia. We've got Singapore. Uh, we're looking at Korea and Japan. So teams, club teams uh... we've got club and we've got national teams as well mm -hmm. so we've got under 16s national tournament uh international tournament and different region uh, academies from across australia as well and then also i've also ventured into the indoor side which is a bit of a different uh format of hockey uh, but very well focused for uh indonesia malaysia um singapore is indoor hockey a big thing in india no, not so much in India. Um, so that's why I've gone across a few different markets. Mm. Uh, but through Asia, it is quite big mm. because it's a smaller side, five and five, different unique mm. sets of skills. Um, and then there's a World Cup coming up, looks like in South Africa in the following year, in 2023. So when you, when, I guess when we look at sports diplomacy, you know, there, there's many aspects to it. There's the you know the the competitions and the exposure and 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 the media you get from the actual games yeah. but um you know you you know from the from the links you know that you've had mm -hmm. uh as a player and a coach um the how how much do you think those things can develop into more um i guess long term people to people links yeah. uh cultural links even in, in in government i mean with india unfortunately or fortunately the the, the, sp the sports diplomacy is really for you know naturally has has revolved around cricket yep. for for many many years and and we've seen the value of that right mm -hmm. we've seen how australian cricket players uh you know uh you know generate so much fan attention in india um the sponsorship they get whether it's playing but also the endorsements mm -hmm. and and um yeah is that something you think that can be replicated to a certain extent i don't think hockey is ever going to be as big as cricket in india but 
do you see that as an opportunity yeah absolutely um hockey for india it's a home it's a home sport yeah. they feel like it's a national game so you'll have a lot of people at, and now coming into commonwealth games you'll have a lot of people really follow it and they get a huge amount of attention like we would have anywhere from 40 to 50,000 people come to the airport when you came home. Mm. So these are the sort of different numbers. Again, you talk about and how they sort of follow you and follow on. Mm. Um, I think the game, because of how well they've done and the women, so the women for the first time made number four in the world for the Olympics. And they beat Australia. Beat Australia, yes. The girl that scored the goal, I trained her for about a year and a half. So it's your fault. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, no. No, no, you got to do it on the day, yeah. like we all know, yeah. which is difficult. But um, I think I think the growth and, and what you're talking about, the cultural experience, it, like my friend here said, he, uh, Robbie, effectively, everything is based on relationships yeah. in Asia. So my connection into Japan is the head of Japan. The guy, uh, one of the guys from Malaysia who is the head of Malaysia is one of the princes. Yeah. So they're the people that you really got to connect with the people that are making decisions and, and create something that they're not going to get elsewhere. Mm. So I've just run a coaching conference. We've had uh, over, over a hundred coaches in and out from, from overseas, but also from um, Western Australia mm. and brought in different Olympic coaches, guys that have coached throughout Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, US. And so when they bring different experiences back, they can't get that else anywhere else mm. in the world. And lucky enough here in Perth, we're effectively the home of hockey. Yeah. So the AIS is based here at Curtin University, which I'm probably not allowed to say Curtin University here. Yeah. Um, really? But it's been there since the 1980s and they're looking to further develop that as, as we go. And, and I think I, I might be, I might be wrong here, but the, the, the growth, um, coming out of success in India, I mean, winning that, that bronze medal and the women doing well as well. I, I think instinctively, because of what you said about, you know, Perth being such a major hockey center in the world and, and has been, um, if if there's, a, there's some creativity, you know, by all stakeholders, you know, yourselves as as the hockey organization, but but government, whether it be federal or state, and the awareness, you know, whether it's tourism attraction for, you know, as they come for competitions and 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 you know that that hockey destination as hockey becomes again more popular in India, I think there's that there is quite a lot to be done there. Um, are you finding that you're getting enough support from the various levels of government? Or do you think it needs to be done organically? Or do you think there's a role for business and corporates to play more of a role? I think there's definitely, you're going to always say there's, there's a role there for corporates and, and businesses because uh, one of the programs I've sort of built is more of an elite um, businessman's trip where they'll go and experience India. Um, so there's a Hockey World Cup in January 23, and they've just built a stadium which will hold well, more than 70,000 people um, with hotels and all that type of stuff. And I think that the sports diplomacy of offering something that they, we don't get here. Yeah. And then the flip side of bringing people out. Um, I think there's great scope for um, the government and we're looking into doing some more things with them, but also bringing them along on these adventures or what I call yeah. them, but experiences and then seeing what is actually done. 
Um, so we're looking at some federal, we're looking at some state funding, and it's about really building out the program at the moment. And what's the level of corporate funding uh, for hockey in India? Uh, depends on which sort of organization you're working through. So I've done some work with uh, the Odisha government, mm. which are the major sponsor for FIH. Mm. Um, and then they've also got a, an academy, which is run through with Tata Steel mm -hmm. uh, and Tata Trust, which also uh, the round table we set out like this the other day, uh, they said there's 980,000 employees part of Tata. Mm. So there's a, there's a bit of a difference in levels and, um, Sports like JSW, which run Bangalore um, Football Football Club, are looking at doing more in that space as well. Um, there's a vast range of obviously very um, experienced uh, businesses in the market, mm. but they're more looking after specific academies, which are business, um, so they can actually get a, a fair return on it. Okay, I, I think why I'm focused on the business because we've had seminars here uh, that, and you know. In the Perth USA Asia Centre has had around the, the Australian government, notwithstanding our trade figures have gone up with India, um, you know, reasonably, you know, um, steady with Indonesia, there is a sentiment that, that there's not enough business to business involvement in both countries. I mean, you would have seen that in the, um, in, in your role in, um, in the AIBC. Um, do you do you see a, an opportunity of that you know for football to play a role in helping that business to business connection, especially given the amount of corporate money I guess in 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 football in Indonesia? Yeah, definitely. And sort of the trade relationship between Australia and Indonesia is underdone. Yeah. Hopefully, with this news, um, either with the ISEPA that's been recently signed only a couple of years ago, that it's going to improve and increase and. I feel through sport or through football, there's an opportunity to help, you know, be a, give that, that extra push because I think sport being that soft diplomacy can build real relationships. And, you know, as we've been saying all along, it's all about the relationships when you're over there and, and spending time. And Indonesia is not an easy place to sort of probably do business in, mm. but um, you need resilience, you need to be there, you need to be on the ground, you need to roll your sleeves up and, um, I think just, yeah, it's, it takes time as well. And I found during my time in Indonesia, the longer I spent there, the better relationships I've developed and the more I sort of respect I, I gained as well. Mm. So I think football has a, has a big, big part to play in it, helping to build those relationships between Indonesia and Australia. And, you know, we're talking about the numbers, the figures that watching, you know, professional sport in sort of India and also Indonesia, it's the, the figures are crazy. Like, mm. for example, one of the owners of, you know, a club in the Liga Satu has over 63 million followers on Instagram. Mm. You know, my roommate had five and a half million followers on Twitter. Mm. So, um, you know, the numbers on social media are huge and they're very young demographics and what a great way to engage with, mm. with the young people and sort of develop those long lasting relationships. And so, again, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, sort of a bit out of the box. So, so I like your, I like your idea of bringing you know, players and, and getting the focus here. Um, do, do you see a role for elite Australian teams to be spending more time in Indonesia and in, and 
and in Southeast Asia more generally. Definitely, definitely. And not just the elite, also the grassroots yeah. teams as well, spending time up there and bringing Indonesian teams here as yeah. well. I, you know, Football West brought a team in 2019, Persibaya Surabaya, yeah. the under-19s here, then they travelled up to Surabaya as well. So those type of cultural exchanges are fantastic as but, well. I mean, the, I guess the often with these things, the, the organisational grant is, is, is difficult, the money involved, you know, to to you know to get of you know the a fully stacked soccer team with all their european based stars and all of that it's not something easy to organize definitely definitely uh, also, you know to have a game in you know they've, Stadium got, they've got packed schedules currently yeah. right now and indonesian national team they've got asian cup qualifiers yeah. world cup qualifiers so, so excuse me be able to organize games it's quite difficult as well but we just need to be creative we you know, I think we need it when we do things, we need to do them really well. Mm. And, you know, we as a sporting nation, I think we do the one percenters really well. Mm. And so if we sort of, you know, like show our point of difference, is it our facilities? Mm. Is it our proximity, Western Australia to Indonesia? Mm. Is it the quality of our coaching, you mm. know, our governance, our management, you know, like our sort of universities as well? I think because it's a very competitive market, the football mm. and sporting, mm. you know, sort of landscape, and we just need to sort of really get up there and I think spend a little bit of time there, understand what they need, and then work together with them. And I think we will be successful. Sort of borrowing a little bit from the from from you know the India and the cricket, you know, the way cricket and say rugby is organised with you know say the annual you know best of three Bledisloe Club type. We don't really mention Bledisloe Cup too much <laughs> because we get beaten every time, but but a kind of a you know, once in two year home and away series. That'd be a dream. For yeah, me. you know, you know, with with, like the, with with a fully loaded Australian football team versus you know, and then that gives the continuity. You have a tradition of doing that. I mean, how how I'm imagining it, but I'm imagining it is very difficult to do. But you know, it could even like be an A League All Stars team against a Liga Satu okay. All Stars team. That you know, would be, could be yeah, creative. Could it be like a West Australian State team against the East Java State team, stuff like that. You know, we there's there's those potential opportunities there, and um, you know, I forgot to mention that you got the under twenty uh, FIFA World Cup being hosted in Indonesia next year mm. for the first time. So they'll be playing in a World Cup there, and then we've got the Women's World Cup next year, and you know, like and. It's such a great opportunity for us to work together mm. to be able to sort of help grow the game and help each other and develop those people-to-people links along the way. Mm. All right. Before I, I go to the audience, maybe one last question for you, Chris. Um, you know, so what, again, I'll ask a little bit that, that you know, blue sky thinking question. Sure. Um, if, you know, if, if you had the opportunity to go, there, if there's one thing you think that, let's say Hockey Australia, not just WA, could do to um, improve engagement all across Asia. I mean, India is this particular focus because Australia at this point in time is trying to consolidate its relationships with India, build it. Um, uh, but, you know, across Asia, you know, somebody gives you a blank check today, what would you, what would you do? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I'd probably bring on a few more people to help me do what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, there, there is a lot of scope and there are a lot of feelings about uh, the home hockey here in Western Australia. So a lot of people want to come. There's, there's plans on uh, fixing and improving and, and building a new stadium um, and bringing more teams in because as Robbie said, the proximity, the opportunity, the coaching level, 
uh, we've got some world-class master coaches here in WA. So to make like WA a, like a like a even more bigger center with the facilities, yeah. with the funding to bring yeah. to bring um, coaches and 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 so players for hockey in Australia, we're, we're number one in the world. Yeah. So for as long as I was, there's only one point we're number two in the world. So we're lucky enough to really um, sort of teach a lot of the world. We push Belgium to sort of follow the style of play in Holland and we sort of up, up the level. So they've then now be able to follow. Uh, there's a lot of respect for, for my group when I came through from Asian countries because uh, out of my, I think it was prior to the Olympics, I lost one game in London Olympics, which is a, a semi-final. We played a game previously, pre-Olympic pre, um, games against Germany. We lost so two games in about a year. Yeah. So you're talking out of 50 matches, you lose... You lose two games, one is the semi-final. So there's a lot of um, respect from Asia, the way we go about doing our work. And the same would be for soccer. Discipline, finishing, you know, we have such an array of way of doing things. So, so to borrow from Robbie's idea then, um, is there scope to integrate more, you know, players from the region into yeah. our club and state competitions uh, in Australia. Yep. And and you know, again, because it's such a well-respected league and, yeah. and infrastructure here. Absolutely. I, I'm I'm sure there'll be elite, you know, top-level players in India, Malaysia, mm -hmm. Singapore, um, Pakistan, Bangladesh that would love the opportunity to come and and you know play a season here for yeah. one of the definitely. So I had three Indian players coming that I'd coached um, Commonwealth Games and all that type of stuff. Um, they then got pulled. So that was towards the end of their career. They were coming out. Unfortunately, they then got called back into the camp because there was a, a change of schedule between teams and so forth. They couldn't, there's too many tournaments for them to go to that they could actually be at. So we had some, uh, we had some Indians, I had some Malaysians that were looking to come. Uh, there is a tournament which we hold called Rick Charles' Classic, funny enough. Um, where we have a selection process and what next year I've looked to do is bring out an Indian team to fulfill that hmm. as well as some possible Malaysian team. Excellent. So there's some interest there, but we had, we've had some Japanese players. We've had some Singapore just recently play as well. So there's a big push to be able to in integrate them a lot. And like Robbie was saying, <clears throat> what made India so good was our hockey Indian league experience because they then played with the best players in the world. And they then grew. So from that experience, they played Junior World Cup. They went on to win. Mm. So these players then have got a pension for the rest of their life mm. from that. So they get looked after. So the understanding playing with the best players from Germany, India, sorry, Germany, Australia, Spain, Holland, all coming in one place, having that experience really pushed up the level of India. And, and you can still see that with that group that's playing now. Great. Um, I'll open up to the, to the floor, Jim. I'll repeat the question. We don't have a roving mic tonight. I'll, I'll repeat the, the question for the online um, audience and for the recording. Um, the question from Jim was the question of China. How can we apply? How can we better use sports diplomacy, whether it's hockey or, or, or football or potentially other sports um, to help our relations with China? I think what's, what's great with sport, it doesn't discriminate. You know, once you're on that field, once you're playing, um, we're all the same. We've all got that common goal and, you know, have fun, enjoy yourselves, try and win. But afterwards, your friends and 
Um, I think, you know, could it be like a bit of a two-way exchange as well, them coming down here and we going up there and just sort of really getting to understand, you know, China a lot better and mm. through football. We've got a lot of players that have actually played from here, from Australia, played in China. They yeah. had fantastic times. Mm. Um, you know, Tim Cahill, Dino Djurbic, the Griffiths brothers, um, and they've already got fantastic things to say about mm. China. And maybe that's another, like, a little bit of a bridge mm. to help build the diplomatic relations between our two countries. Mm. I, I know soccer obviously is very big. They put a lot of money into it, yeah. so that there's a there's a big opportunity, and it it kind of has happened. It's about how do you can leverage that a bit more going forward. How do we assist them to achieve yeah. their goals to qualify for a World Cup? You yeah, know, they're really keen, and um, they've put a lot of money into their professional leagues, into the junior development as well. And is there an opportunity for us to use our expertise, you know, up there as well, and vice versa? Yeah. Chris, I. Yeah, Chinese hockey has, has come a long way. I mean, they put a lot of money in it. They put a lot of money in it. Uh, their club competition is um, quite quite hefty. Like they they play across all the states, and a lot of them won't don't like to leave China for hockey. But if you win the the club competition individually, they get bonuses of up upwards of a million dollars per player. So that they're, they're it's quite a sport that they play. Um, currently, there's a, there's a lady called Alison Annan who played, I think she won three gold medals at the Olympics. She coached Holland uh, to gold medals in the women. And she's currently there now as their head coach for China. And we've just got Rick Charlesworth, who's now become one of her assistant and a high performance director. So I think there's definitely some angles to be able to open yeah. up more around the whole business relations as well. Yeah. But they do see our experience um, and looking at further development. Uh, what happens in, in China, they have Pro League, which is the top uh, sort of eight teams in the world. And they're a part of that. Um, and what, what generally happens is the Providence that wins the competition then plays as China. So I would like to see how good they could actually be if they played as one country, as a, as a whole national body. So... I think it'd be very interesting to see how uh, how they'd come, because I think that they're a very um, disciplined race, and I played them when I was a, I was young, under 18s. We played against the Chinese women, and uh, their coach was pulling them into place and telling them exactly what to do in their face, and I, we were all a bit shocked, but uh, they went on to win uh, a silver medal, so in uh, 2000 Olympics, so they can be they can be quite good. And discipline. Excellent. Okay. I, there is a question online um, from Fiona Rothschild. It's a very sporting question. <laughs> it is, um, yes, it is 10 years out, but what can Australia do in the next 12 months uh, to prepare for the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games? You go first, this one. No, you can make I guess it's a longer term thing, but you know, what would you do if you say in your sport, if you're, if I can sort of interpret it, you know, if we, what would you do in the next twelve months to start that long journey so that we win goals in the men's and women's? Uh, I would definitely say so. At the moment, there's a bit of an arm wrestle to where um, the national um, uh, team will stay. So that there's a bid going on, bid process. Um, which WA is leading, which is always good. Um, Brisbane have put in some good bids to be able to develop that because obviously with 32 Olympics coming, uh, they want to have that as their national centre. Um, I think the 
the understanding that is very similar, I suppose, to soccer. Hockey is you sort of have a four-year cycle as a coach. So you'll go effectively post-Olympics, you'll have your sort of thin-out period. And then depending on what you do with selection, uh, generally we're talking we're talking two cycles. So that could be two, that could be two different coaches in that in that window. Um, the nice thing is Hockey Australia and Hockey WA have now been developing a younger group. So there's also already uh, in uh, in the picture groups that have been developing for that further process. So we've got different state teams, we've got different academies, and then that further future futures group, which is the Australian group, which will then be ready for that period of time. Excellent. And in and in soccer, obviously, we've had some close calls when it comes to the Olympics. I think the men's took a fourth placing some years ago, and I think. Tokyo, we got fourth in the women's. Yeah, we actually sort of qualified also for the men's for the first time in a while. And yeah. I think, you know, we want to try and keep on qualifying for the Olympics. It's a fantastic tournament. So almost like, you know, precursors training for when these players go and play in the World Cup. And the more tournament experience you can get, the better. And, you know, looking at 2032, that's a, you know, the 2009 born to 2013. So how are we putting programs in place for the kids? So they will be able to be successful, both male and female. And I think with the amount of money now going to facilities here in Australia, you know, at the home of the Matildas. Because with, with football, it's the Olympics is under 23. That's right? correct, yeah, yeah, under 23. So you usually go under 17 World Cup, under 20 World Cup, under 23s is the Olympics, and then you have the, the World Cup. Mm. So we're going to see hopefully a few of the players that were playing in the Olympics last year being able to play in the World Cup at the end of the year, So, which is fantastic as well. I think, I mean, this is this is very, very uh, pertinent to, to what we do here at AIA. I think next year, I think not, it hasn't dawned on a lot of people, but the, the hosting of the Women's World Cup next year in 2023, that will have the eyes of uh, the world on, 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 on Australia again and through sports again, which is great. And I'm hearing that it will be our largest event since the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Yeah. You know, you're going to have just I reckon around 50,000 Americans travel here for the tournament and you know WA is hosting some games which is fantastic as well you've got the home of Matilda's being built in in Victoria we've got the home of the home of you know football here in Western Australia being built so it's a fantastic opportunity we've got a golden generation of the Matilda's mm. Sam Kerr the best player in the world from you know WA. from WA and which is fantastic as well and yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's fantastic. It's such a really exciting time for football in yeah, Australia. I think, I think that will have a, a real eye-opener on sports diplomacy. I mean, you know, as, as you know, Australia, as we said at the beginning, does extremely well for its image by hosting these big international events. Um, um, and hope it increases, you know, participation, you know, with, with the female, you know, with, with girls and, you know, and also from the boys' point of view as well. And we get more people playing, you know, the game as well and um, getting more, you know, sort of eyes on Australia, being able to see the fantastic facilities and stadiums we have on offer and maybe tourism and education and so on. Yep, excellent. I think, uh, I think, I think I won't be surprised if we do more, more sort of foreign policy, international relations discussions around around that world cup next year any more questions from the audience yes yeah fantastic question and um, in an ideal world hopefully it wouldn't be sort of any politics in sport but um yeah can we use it for good you know can we sort of bring people together and just sort of um, be that bridge with respect to have that one sort of you know like sort of love is it sport you know is it football and 
yeah, bringing people together. And I just think, you know, like through football or through hockey or through what other, other sports, there's an opportunity to do that, that soft diplomacy. So um, hopefully, you know, we can, through sport, build, you know, better relations. You develop that sort of through my experience. I lived in Indonesia. I didn't know much about Indonesia through football. I've been able to develop that cultural competency, been able to learn the language, that Indonesia literacy, and that takes time. And, you know, through sport, you know, I was able to do all that travel around Indonesia, get to understand the country, really sort of, you know, developed a real passion for Indonesia. I call myself an Indonesianist right now as well. And how do you say it? Um, and I never would have thought I would actually travel and play in Indonesia when I was younger. So, yeah, so I think it's sort of changed me. So, And and I think, you know, in, in the Indian context, we've seen how, you know, we've got a really live example of how cricket has been, I mean, not to say in Indian Australia has never had a fractious relationship, mm. There were fractious moments, but cricket was all you know was always a safe space. Um, even during the you know during periods, say when the Indian nuclear testing took place, you know about twenty years ago, um, you know conversations still took place. You know very, you know cricket provided an avenue for for that. So um, yeah. you know now that bandwidth should should expand to hockey as well. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think there's always some element of politics, um, especially where they fund specific things as well um yeah government as soon as funding pools and so forth come through there are sort of some form of elements um but i think there's always going to be politics no matter what sort of level and i look at just the teams that we would have played through and and depending on selection and all that that i think there's always an angle of politics that uh would run through however with sport you do want to have those relationships which are open, the ability to compete and, and work together. And I've seen the ability, for example, Hockey India League, where you had Dutch, Spanish, Argentinians, Australians and Indians from around India all playing together, um, trying to work together and build those relationships. So very light end. But... I think the, yeah, the, the idea that you had earlier around, you know, if we have more Chinese players playing in the A League. That that's a small step, right? Yeah, but it, it contributes. It's almost like an olive branch. Yeah. Um, 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 the the challenge with being prescriptive though in sport is, you know, you want the best players. Club wants, you know, they want the best players, and and I guess there's so much po only policies can achieve uh, for that kind of that participation. Uh, increasing that participation and, oh, involvement. coaches as well there it's pretty precarious you know like we we're talking about before the amount of coaches the turnover and you know like it's a very precarious industry and there's not many jobs available professional jobs and for them to probably take a chance on a player which probably doesn't have a experience mm. and it might be a little bit difficult but we're just going to say listen you know give them some time and how about we make them a really sort of enjoyable experience you know like make everything make them feel at home and mm. just give them time you know give them opportunity to sort of adapt and they'll become you know good players and be able to sort of be successful excellent danny yeah, thanks guys. I'm really interested in the space that you're talking about, particularly in terms of grassroots um, connection. You, you said uh, when you went to first place football in Indonesia, you, you hardly knew anything about it. Um, kids from my uh, soccer club went to Denmark. They fundraised went to Denmark and played a tournament there. They raised 15,000 kids or whatever and sent them over here rather than going local. Australia's got a 
Australian Twins both got a bilingual massive review. Um, school to the program for the kids in year 11 and 12 go over and, you know, build a toilet or build something somewhere. Like, for me, sport has this sort of capacity to connect people. And, to, to, you know, like you said, when you go on to the field, you're all the same. Yeah. It, it seems like it's so, such a, such a, a natural space to build those early relationships that are not being built at the moment. I don't think we do grassroots football really well. You know, we can do it better, but I think we do it really well. And that- can I just repeat the question? I guess the the question from from the audience here was the. The, the the prospect for doing more grassroots connections between you know teams from you know from players whether different age groups um in Australia with with our nearest neighbors right and I always go back to the, my first experience playing professionally or playing for the state team at the Lion City Cup and you know playing against the likes of Philippines Vietnam you know we're, we're in the same hotel eating together you know you're playing be having a bit of a laugh and um, developing relationships there and um, you know for the kids who got there and it's not just about the football it's about traveling around looking you know learning a little bit of the language understanding the culture um, you know Indonesians have a similar to us they love their sport they love their family they love their food love their coffee you know love to travel so um, it's just a great opportunity for us to develop that a little bit more of a you know, understanding of Indonesia so I think you know like the media you don't help too much mm. and I think it's a great way for us to develop that sort of you know understanding of Indonesia and then it's also a bit of a ripple effect when they come home had a fantastic time in Indonesia played you know, some fantastic games developed some really good relationships got to travel to Jakarta or Surabaya or Solo or Kalimantan and so on so I think so in terms I mean to develop Danny's question so in terms of you know what is a career prospect you know it's so hard to be a professional sports person right um, and given the level of support that football has in Indonesia, I mean, you you were a bit of a pioneer, but is, can you see a pathway for, for more Australians to, to, to play and make a good living? I'm not sure, you know, what is the, the recompense, say, playing in, 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 in Indonesia or Malaysia or Singapore, but is that something attractive to, a, to an aspiring football player in Australia? Definitely. Like, so we're so lucky with football being global. So you can go play wherever. You can go play throughout Asia. You know, is it Africa? Is it Europe? Is it the Middle East? Is it North America, South America? And I always tell players, Indonesia is another option for you there as well. And I had a fantastic time there playing in front of big crowds. I was able to do what I love, travel close to home, great weather, um, and sort of, how do you say it? I never thought I'd end up in Indonesia, but I did and had a fantastic time. We've seen a lot of players go up there and play right now before, you know, after I was there. And um, it's just another option for the players. And some players are looking to Europe. I think, you know, like Europe might not be an option. Indonesia might be a better option mm. for them as well, or Malaysia or Singapore or is it China and so on. So, And do you, do you think there is the the openness for, say, young players when, they, when they're thinking, I mean, obviously that, Everyone wants to go and play in, in the in, in the top leagues in Europe, but is it in the mindset or do you just accidentally fall into it? Well, definitely. I think it's probably the players that have played there as well. It's a bit of our our sort of job to educate the players as well. Like, okay, if you're not going to be able to make it in the A-League or in Europe, 
you have Indonesia or, you know, like you might play in the A-League, but do you want a different experience? You want to go and play in front of big crowds? Do you want to sort of, you know, like develop, have a really good like sort of experience as well and travel and, you know, like, you know, go to different places where you never thought you'd go and you know, experience new cultures, new lifestyles, new foods and develop new relationships. So there's always that opportunity. So it's a bit different for hockey in India because the pipeline is there because of the IPL and they're out there recruiting Australians, right? I mean, at any given time, you know, there's, you know, Australians will be being sought after to play in in those yes. teams. I think um, for the last couple of years, they've actually put a pause on the IPL uh-huh. uh, for hockey. It's just COVID, yeah. COVID, and and also organising yeah. uh, different teams that are around funding and so forth. Which is, their their plan is to bring it back now, uh, but on the grassroots level, I'd say um, having now working with Hockey Western Australia again, that academy program really pushing that across every age group and then into the school program, really building that. When I was in India, um, I went, like I said, we traveled through different states and did all that. Uh, Hockey India, during COVID, we had online sessions sort of like this and um, we, we developed a lot of coaches. So myself, the other uh, head coach and women's coach was from Holland. Uh, we would do Zoom meetings and questions and assignments for 400 plus coaches at one time. So lucky I wasn't marking them. I handed that to someone else. Um, but that was the sort of scope you're looking at. People would have to log in and that would be then part of their job. So they were marked off individually to make sure that everything was done and then assignments and so forth like that. Um, but into Indonesia at present, I've, I've um, worked with one of the guys who's the president of East Java and we're looking to further develop that program into their schools um, because there's not always a, a focus as of sport. Um, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I've only been there once, but um, it's, it's that further development to make sure that they then uh, start that grassroots program and keep developing. Um, I took personally from my own academy, um, Sorella Coaching Academy, run for about 17 years with my father. We took 30 Australians from um, all over Australia to India, right in the perfect time of uh, January 2020, <laughs> just on COVID. Um, so that was an interesting experience. And, uh, we went through Delhi and Agra, saw the, saw the Taj Mahal, they played and they got welcomed by a lot of different weird TV stations. We also then, um, took them through orphanages. We took them through, uh, different zoos. They stayed at hotels with the teams. So we had Holland and India stay in the same hotel. So they stayed with them, met the players, ate and had those experiences. And then to one of the schools, which I've been aligned with since about 2012, they have 27,000 kids at this one school. They feed them three times a day and they're all tribal. They don't speak the same language. So they teach them songs and so forth to further develop. So I got to get them there. And they said, uh, the guy that runs it is, is a, a friend now. Um, he effectively said, oh, we can only have the year eights at the moment, which is 5,000 in the gym, um, of which they, they stood up and sung the national anthem for my group that came. Um, and my tour was always, always about being challenged. So after they'd finished singing the national anthem, I asked uh, who had sung before. And uh, one girl said, yeah, I was in the choir. So I said, fantastic, here's a microphone. So she stood up and all the parents wanted to get out of the way. So I pulled them all together and they sung the national anthem of Australia mm-hmm. to, to 5,000 year eights plus uh, 14 different TV channels. <laughs> so um, that was a very interesting experience for them. Um, but... These are the sort of uh, 
I, I think at, at grassroots level that that uh, we're talking about in these these heavily populated countries, but they're they're really welcoming, especially Australians. Good, thanks. Wow, that's you know this is the kind of you know that those kind of impactful um, life experiences, you know, hopefully then develops as well the long term interest in relationships with the countries that they visit. We've had an online uh, participant who cannot use the or has had problem using the Q and A function. So, so unless there's another and any other question from the floor, this will be the last question. It's a question to Robbie. It's a very specific one. You know it better than the sense of it better than I do. Is there an opportunity to discuss um, the possibility of Indonesian players playing in the NPLWA without it being included as one of the two visa players? Oh, that would be like a dream for me to see an Indonesian play or Indonesian players playing in the NPL. I think it would sort of, you know, like increase the awareness and maybe, you know, increase, you know, a bit of point of difference for the NPLWA. So maybe that's something we can sort of speak about later on. But um, how do you say it? I did have the opportunity to bring some Indian national team players to play in the NPL because it works perfectly. They finish the, uh, their IPL um, Indian Super League season in March and then they start again training in September so it was the opportunity to come and play during their off season just to play some extra games that wasn't able to sort of come to right. fruition oh. that would have been fantastic you know to have would it come back on yeah hopefully, yeah. Um, hopefully yeah because um, you know they play for that six months and they've got six months where they're not sort of playing mm. games so for them to be able to come here and, and it works out perfectly with WA but um, to have an Indonesian player or players playing here in, in WA be fantastic and i think it'd be fantastic because the games will be televised hopefully right back into an yeah. opportunity for sponsors for people to just really sort of understand indonesia and yeah sort of increase the awareness of our you know npl competition great i'm assuming there are no final questions we have come to our end uh as as it's tradition um um we have a gift for you but before we do that. I just wanted to make some final remarks, which is, you know, this is a, I guess this is an unusual topic for an AIIA, uh WA event, especially with sporting, you know, people who have played professional sport in, in, in countries where we are trying to develop these relationships, non-traditional sports. When I say, you know, outside of cricket, rugby, um, uh, and you know the, the the sports that Australians are really famous for in in the in I guess in the developed countries. So I I think what you've shown us is from your own personal experience is that it, it sports that can play a foundation uh, to help Australia and Australians build relations in in our nearest uh, neighbourhood. Um, it, it what I hear is things are happening that probably haven't happened before but a lot more can be done. Uh, I think um, both of you are contributing your experience in that, in that, in that quest, in that uh, journey. So I wish you all the best. And, um, and, you know, we'd love to have you back here down the road and give us an update in three or four years time. And, you know, you know, things have, have developed and, and you've been able to, to, to contribute even more. So Molly, our secretary has, has got a small token of our appreciation. And um, thank you. I'll close the recording now. And thank you to all our online uh, viewers. And I apologize again for the uh, technical problems earlier on. Thank you very much.